Oh, is that on? Okay. All right. This morning we'll be looking at the uh, origin, function, and qualifications of deacons. The origin, function, and qualification of deacons. So please open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are going to read verses 8 to 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Lord God, we just pray that as we study this office in the church that you have given us, that you have instituted, you'd help us to understand and appreciate it, help us to appreciate those men who are serving in our midst that you would even put a desire in the hearts of some here that they might one day um, serve in this capacity. And Lord, for all of us, as we study um, what you value in maturity, what you value in excellence, that we would aspire to holy, godly lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a brief recap of where we've been. Last week, we looked at elders, and we're sort of in a section of 1 Timothy governing body life, um, corporate conduct as we come together. All of chapter 2 was given to that. And now chapter 3 is given to that. And we know that that is Paul's purpose in writing the entire book. Next week, in fact, we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, where Paul clearly states, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So once again, Paul wants to do some things, put some things in order, and this letter is written in case he delays so that Timothy can begin to put those things in order. And Paul describes those things as teaching us how we ought to behave in God's family, in the household of God. And so every household needs structure and organization. Last week we saw elders, this week deacons. And, and last week we saw the elders and pastors and overseers are really three ways of speaking of one office. Um, Christ has only given the church two offices that remain. There were apostles and prophets, but um, we do not believe those offices have continued. But elders and deacons have. And elders of the two probably get more attention and more understanding, and deacons often can be misunderstood, neglected. And so it's my hope that today we would learn and study and have our eyes opened of what this high calling is, that we would appreciate those men in our midst who are serving that way, and that God would uh, help us to grow in holiness. Now, to understand deacons, we kind of have to look at their origin. And so if you would turn in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 6, we're going to spend a little bit of time here, so we can see their institution. Because Paul addresses deacons sort of assuming that his audience, Timothy, understands what deacons are. And 
He doesn't really explain what they are or what they do in 1 Timothy. Um, but we need to understand that if we're going to appreciate it. So turn back to Acts chapter 6. Now the setting is this. It's the early church in Jerusalem still before they get scattered. Chapter 6 introduces Stephen who will begin his speech at the end of which they will stone him to death. And then they'll begin a widespread persecution and the disciples will scatter. But right now the church is concentrated in Jerusalem. There's many thousands of Christians and the dispute arises. We read that in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's Greek Christians, and there are Jewish Christians, and the Greek Christians, called Hellenists in the ESV, um, are basically saying, hey, our widows, our, the Greek widows are getting neglected. The, the Jewish widows are getting preference. And apparently there's something to it because the text just says it happened. In verse 2, the twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parnaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now you might say, okay, what does that have to do with deacons? Deacons aren't named here. Well, the first blank here, and what makes sometimes studying deacons tricky, is that deacons simply means servant. It simply means servant. Deacon isn't even a translation of the word. It's simply taking the Greek, diakonos, across into English. They've simply transliterated it, kind of like they do with baptize. And so it simply means a servant, and not just any servant, but a lowly, menial servant. See, the word deacon does show up in the text. You just don't see it. It's in verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to deacon tables. There it is. Just to serve. And so they appoint men to be servants, to serve, to deacon. And so this, this text is about the origin of deacons, even if it doesn't jump out. Because sometimes your Bibles will translate deacon, serve, and sometimes they'll just bring it across without translating it, saying deacon. Um, I'll give you another example. You don't need to turn there. It's very familiar. But in Mark 10, 43 to 45, Jesus says this, It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One commentator paraphrases that passage this way. He says, the, uh, the deaconate, or the, the ministry of deacons, is the office that most closely resembles the servanthood of Jesus. In fact, Jesus sometimes used the word deacon to describe his own ministry. And then he quotes this passage in his own words. Whoever will be great among you must be your deacon. Whoever will be first among you must be the slave of all, 
For even the Son of Man came not to receive diaconal care, but to serve as a deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so you begin to see part of the problem is that all sorts of people are called deacons in the sense that all sorts of people are called servants. And yet it's clear Jesus is not claiming the office of deacon in the local church here. Um, all sorts of people are said to serve the church and be servants in the church. And yet in our passage in 1 Timothy, it's clear there is an office of deacon. And so that creates some levels of debate as people study through the New Testament. Is so-and-so a deacon or are they simply a servant? Um, we're not going to dive into that here today. But, but that's the basic gist is deacon means a servant. It means a servant. And we know it's one of the offices in the local church from 1 Timothy. Also from Philippians 1.1. Listen to how Paul addresses his epistle to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so this, this office of deacon has emerged, and in Acts 6, we see it emerging. So the context, again, is that there's a complaint that there's this massive church, I mean, multi-thousand church, maybe as high as 10,000 people, and there's many widows, and especially in that culture where there's not social programs in place to help widows, a widow would be left very much dependent upon her family, and if there wasn't any nearby family, you know, homeless, penniless. And so the church was rightly caring for the widows, and there's a large amount of money being given. We read about in Acts 5. So there's a lot of resources. And as this is being divvied up, and as the widows are being cared for, and as the money is being spent somehow or other the Greek widows are being neglected and obviously that was a problem and an issue of concern in the church they cried out the apostles came together and they said this is a they acknowledged it as a legitimate concern but one that they thought others could settle and so they told the congregation find for yourselves seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit and appoint them to this task and that becomes the origin, then, of the deacons. So next, we're going to look at the function of deacons. And again, this passage in Acts is going to be very instructional for us. And what we're going to look at is these four functions. We're going to look at it in their context and then in our context. Because our church, as you know, has deacons. We are greatly blessed by them. So the first function of deacons that we learn of in Acts 6 is to facilitate the ministry of the elders. In this case, the elders and the apostles, but again, without apostles continuing, to facilitate the ministry of the elders. They're to coordinate with them. They're to maximize the use of the elders. They're to use their gifts so the elders can use their gifts. And that there's this synergy, this complementing nature between the two. Um, in short, we're going to see the really only qualification difference between deacons and elders is the ability to teach. Um, the elders are those godly men with a desire who are gifted in teaching and preaching. The deacons are those godly men who don't have that level of gifting. And so the thought being here that those who are gifted in teaching are to focus on that. And the deacons are here to help coordinate ministry, which is our second point, to coordinate ministry in the church body. You see, with many thousands of Christians and, and probably hundreds of widows... It's unlikely that these seven men are actually delivering the food. Um, and it would seem strange to have such high qualifications. You can imagine someone wanting to help out with, um, with a program down at Hope Ministries. 
and you know because they don't meet the qualifications of a deacon they can't go serve food I don't think that's what's going on here um, they're coordinating this ministry they're making sure that the funds go to the right places that the meals and the money go to where they need to go and it's distributed they're overseeing the ministry they're coordinating the ministry thirdly they are managing money and resources in the church they're managing money and resources in the church. And I think that's the, the big reason for their qualifications is clearly these men are given the purse of the church, at least as it relates to the widows and ministry and mercy. You know, all of our deacons at our church have budgets and they can spend the money of the church within their budget. Um, so they're entrusted with this task of here's all this money that the church is bringing in as people are selling their possessions, as people are giving to the church. And these seven men are taking, pooling that money, and then figuring out where it needs to go in ministry, making sure that no one's neglected, making sure that no one's left out. So they facilitate the ministry of the elders. They coordinate ministry in the church body. They manage money and resources in the church. And point D to promote peace and unity in the church body. To promote peace and unity in the church body. And this may be a little less obvious, but the whole point was, without this office, there was dissension, disputing, quarreling. And so the entire point of their office is to coordinate ministry so that there is peace in the body. To coordinate and oversee ministry so that there is unity and one-mindedness. And that's, that's the function back in their day, just sort of going through these same four points in our day. Um, the function of the deacons is to facilitate the ministry of the elders. We are tremendously blessed that men like Gary McVeigh oversee the grounds, and there's a lot of work and coordinating that he does, that Mike Doty does with finances, that Wendell does with the missions board, that frees the elders up to, for shepherding, for prayer, for study of the word, for directing the teaching ministries in the church. It's a tremendous blessing, and, and our elders, we are tremendously facilitated and freed by the work of the deacons here. To coordinate ministry in the local church, again, that's exactly what's going on as various deacons are coordinating ministry, coordinating the workday, coordinating our missionaries, coordinating communion and the worship service with Dennis, coordinating children's ministry with Jeremy. Sweet. And to manage money and resources. These men are entrusted with budgets, entrusted with the church's funds, trusted to spend it appropriately. And in so doing, they promote peace and unity in the body. That, that's the function of deacons. Um, and there's really no limit. I thought They pick seven here, but there's really no limit um, to deacons in our constitution. If new ministry coordinating positions arose, we could create new deacon positions um, as, as the need um, is there. It's just gifted men, godly men in the church who serve and coordinate and oversee ministry. That, that's what deacons are. And there's a great irony that I think is wonderful. Remember, Jesus says that whoever wants to be great has to be the servant of all. So isn't it wonderful that the title for one of the two offices in the church of leadership is lowly servant? There's, there's an irony there. What's, what's the title of, of one of our two offices? Table waiter, servant, lowly servant. There's great humility and a great sort of upside-downness of God's kingdom that those who would be great serve. And it's seen clearly just in the title of this office of deacon. So now if you turn back to 1 Timothy 3, having looked at the uh, 
origin of deacons, the function of deacons. Now we're going to look at our text and try to go through the qualifications of deacons. And in this sense, this is kind of like part two of last week. Last week, as we looked at the qualifications of elders, I pointed out that really the qualifications of elders are simply those standards of holiness and and maturity that God has called all of us to. I gave the analogy. It's as if as if the Apostle Paul told the entire church here to run hard in that direction. And then he told Timothy to go along and identify the front runners. And if that group of front runners, those that had the desire and the ability to teach, became the elders, and of the rest of the front runners, those who had the gifted and the desire, became, we'll see, deacons. There's nothing deacons are called to that the rest of us are not called to. So again, we, we're going to see another picture of Christian maturity, another picture of Christian masculinity and, and, and mature faith. And so this isn't, again, just a message for deacons and those who want to be deacons and those who may evaluate deacons. This is a message for all of us. Because all Paul is saying is you need, like we saw back in Acts, men filled with wisdom in the Holy Spirit. Godly men. That's, that's the qualification. So, we're just going to break it down into three points. Point A. Qualities of a deacon. A dignified life. A dignified life. And that's just seen in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And so he says it positively, dignified, and then negatively with three nots. Not this, not this, not this. And it helps us understand what he means by dignified. The word there for dignified is, again, commanded to all Christians back in chapter 2. If you turn in 1 Timothy back to chapter 2, Verse 2, one of the reasons Paul wants prayer for all people in all places, including kings, is so that, um, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So again, this dignity, this seriousness, this um, focus on eternal things— is not simply something just for deacons and leadership, but for all believers. Deacons are simply those men who have achieved a level of excellence in this. Again, we live in a culture that that wants to postpone and push out adolescence and boyhood well into the 30s. That's not a biblical picture of maturity. Biblical picture of maturity has has a serious sober-mindedness. Um... Again, it's not that this person is, is a killjoy. It's just we know that there are eternal things going on. There is a war going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Every day we meet people who are either on their way to heaven or hell. Every day the glory of God is at stake in our choices and decisions. And so we can't take living and life lightly. We need to be alert and on our guard, looking for opportunities to advance God's kingdom, looking for opportunities to be faithful to God. That's what's meant by dignified or serious. It means, point I, worthy of respect, really. Worthy of respect. Worthy of imitation. And then it's described negatively in three ways. The first of which is not double-tongued, which is actually a very literal translation of the Greek, dia logos. Double-tongued. 
And the concept is someone who speaks the truth plainly and doesn't say one thing to one person and one thing to another. One commentator said this, this means that this person is not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. Because what you're saying has integrity. Because what you say in public is what you say in private. What you say to person A is what you say to person B. Your words are yes and yes and no and no. And this, this is how the church gets built up. James 3 reminds us that this is really the hallmark of maturity. He says if anyone in James 3 can bridle their tongue, they are a mature or perfect man able to bring their whole body into subjection. So it is a mark of maturity. It's also the way the church gets built up. In Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, and from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The way the body builds itself up in love as each joint, each part works properly and what they're doing is speaking the truth in love. So, this sign of maturity is not double-tongued. Saying the same thing publicly as privately. Not, not, not speaking one thing here and one thing there. Not saying what people want to hear, being a flatterer. But speaking the truth in love plainly. Second, or thirdly, not given to much wine. And this is really identical to the qualification for an elder. The Bible does not forbid alcohol. It forbids drunkenness. It forbids the, um, the habit of drinking, um, the enslavement of alcohol. And so uh, some, some Christians choose to avoid it altogether. Others choose to use it in moderation. And both are good options, and both would be valid for leadership. Paul just says this person has their appetites, their passions under control. They don't get drunk on wine. And they're not greedy for dishonest gain. And again, this is very similar to what we talked about last week. It's really the blank here is contentment. Contentment. Over in chapter 6, Paul warns about those who desire money. Remember, having money is not the problem. God has given some of you, some of us, um, resources. That's not a bad thing. We'll see in chapter 6. The problem is wanting lots of money. Desiring lots of money. You know, being captivated by the possibility of making lots of money. Dreaming about making lots of money. That, that's the problem. That's what we need to watch out for. If God's given you resources, steward them well. And in a few weeks, we will look at that specifically in chapter 6. But here, a mark of biblical maturity is someone who's content. Who's content with what they have. So that's point A, the qualifications of a deacon, a dignified life. A life worthy of respect, who speaks the truth to all, who's not drunk, running around after his passions, It's not greedy, swindler. Secondly, we see the qualification for deacons is a sound doctrine. A sound doctrine. This is seen in verses 9 and 10. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now this phrase, mystery of the faith, is, may seem a little strange. Um, some people sadly have taken this mystery of the faith and tried to turn Christianity into a mysterious, mystical thing. Um, Christianity is not a whodunit. 
Um, God done it, and if you read Revelation, he's going to do it again. Um, that, that's not the point. A mystery, in Paul's usage of the term, um, is, is revealed truth that was hidden previously. That, that's how Paul uses mystery. It's something that was previously hidden that is now revealed. Um, let, me, let me just read for you Paul using the same term in Ephesians 3 to make the point. This is Ephesians 3, 4 to 6. Because when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul says it plainly. I have insight into this mystery of Christ Jesus. It was formerly hidden. Now it's been revealed. What mystery is that? Well, that the Gentiles get to become the people of God alongside of Israel. That's the, that's the mystery he's dealing with there. So a mystery is simply something that's been hidden, now revealed. And so in this context, it simply means, and here's your blank, the mystery of the faith equals sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. The gospel truths. I mean, think about it. The gospel, until Jesus came, was not clear. There, there are these threads in the Old Testament of a Messiah king a suffering servant. There's this picture of the sacrificial system. And it all comes together and culminates in Jesus, but the Jews were not expecting. In fact, they stumbled over the notion of a Messiah king who would die, of a humble God who became man. I mean, the, the Romans treated people who were crucified as accursed. The, the the dirge of the earth and to think that the one who was crucified on a cross is the creator God. Now, this is a mystery indeed. It was needed to be revealed and until it was revealed it would not be known clearly and, and so what Paul is simply saying is the gospel is something that God has now revealed clearly to us. The mystery of the faith. So it's back to his concern for sound doctrine. Remember go back to chapter 1 verse 5 where he tells Timothy why it is that he left him, why it is that he left him in Ephesus. Verse 3, I mean, sorry, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith the aim of his our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So these men who will be deacons are men who have held on to that sound doctrine. They have held on to the gospel, which is really our next point, that hold fast. Um, your, your English may not bring this point out, but in the Greek it's a present active verb, continuous, ongoing action. These are men who are holding fast to the truths of the faith. You know, and honestly, if we think about it, sometimes we can start to loosely hold on to or really not hold on to truth at all, maybe assume it. You know, one of my professors said that liberals don't found institutions. They simply slowly take them over. Because people who at one point guarded the faith, held on to it, begin to hold it with a more and more open hand, a more generous orthodoxy. And as they sort of stop contending for truth, stop caring about truth. Well, things drift, and you always drift away from the source, downriver. 
And so these, these men who are to be deacons are not men who are assuming truth. They are holding fast to it. They are holding to the revealed truth of the faith tightly. Holding fast. Paul, Paul speaks about this type of clinging to truth in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, where he writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. So they, he preached it, they received it, and now they got to hold fast to it. They got to cling to it. The gospel wasn't a news just for people to become Christians. The gospel is what we are holding fast to every day. It should be. And for those who are mature in the faith, this should be a hallmark. Never, never assume the gospel. Never assume truth. And the emphasis here is, is with a clear conscience. And again, this gets back to the uniting of, of truth and love. Remember, in previous weeks, we talked about how Paul's concern for the doctrinal teaching in the church was ultimately a concern for love. The, the goal of our instruction, he said, is love, issuing from a pure heart and a clean conscience and a sincere faith. And here we see the same thing united. He wants them to hold fast to truth with a good conscience. The, the assumption being that if you're holding fast to the gospel, if you're holding fast to Jesus Christ through faith, it will produce a life where we are striving after godliness and where we're confessing our sins when we sin and we are having and keeping and maintaining a clean conscience. And so this union of, of truth and love, truth and holiness comes together again. In fact, go back again to chapter 1. The end, we saw the marks of false teachers was their rejection of a good conscience. Verse uh, 18, chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of the faith. And so these men who will be deacons are men who have not done this. They have held on to the truth. They've held on to a good conscience. They are living out their faith. It's evidenced by their lives. And in them, that union of faith and truth comes together and bears much fruit. Bears much fruit. And they're to be tested. They're to be tested. And again, this is similar to the qualifications for an elder in, in, in verse... Um, where is it? In verse 6 of chapter 3, the elder is not to be a recent convert, which is another way of saying he needs to be mature. Here, he needs to be tested. And the result of that testing, he says, is let them be tested first, let them, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And that is analogous to uh, 3.2. The elders need to be above reproach. So it's just a different way of saying the same thing. The, the deacons need to be tested and found blameless. The elders need to not be new converts and to be above reproach. So they need to be sound in doctrine, mature in the faith, a proven track record of bearing out fruit in their lives, of being found blameless and above reproach. And then they become qualified for deacons. A little later, Paul makes the same notion of not 
hurriedly appointing people to church offices in chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We shouldn't be hasty in, um, in giving people offices in the church. But rather, we should be looking for that tested fruit. And so sometimes when someone comes to Christ and they're on fire and they're excited and they're gifted and they have talents, there can be this desire to, man, we could use you. We're going to put you in here. And, and it's great to let them serve and to work, but there's a, there's a tested quality that comes out over time that is invaluable and necessary for church leadership. So that they are dignified in life, they're sound in doctrine, and they have a stable family. A stable family. This is the last two verses of our text. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Oh no, verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing. Now there is some debate, some, some commentators think this, their wives, is a reference to deaconesses. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. That's not the way I understand the text. That's not the way the majority of modern translations understand the text. It's not the way our church constitution understands the text. But simply put, it, it's odd that he simply calls them wives here. And it also would be odd if he was creating an office of deaconess for him to start talking about deacons in verse 8, then in verse 11, talk about deaconesses, and then go back in verse 12 to deacons. That would seem strange to sort of talk about thing A, one verse on thing B, back to thing A. Um, so I, I agree with the NIV, the ESV, the New King James, the New American Standard, um, that this is their wives. And so their wives simply have lifestyles that imitate theirs. So, so the wife is called to be dignified, not a slanderer, not double-tongued, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. So deacons' wives reflect their character, reflects their shepherding, it reflects their leadership. And they've got to manage their own household and children well. Again, this just means a godly wife and orderly children. And so it's, it's very similar to that of elders, a godly wife and orderly children. And I think we skipped over point one because it comes next in the text. And he says, let a deacon each be the husband of one wife. That phrase, the husband of one wife, is the identical phrase for elders, a one-woman man, which last week we spent some time talking about the, how, what that means is, and here's, you know, point I, a faithful husband. It means a faithful husband. Deacons need to be faithful husbands. They, they need to have eyes only for their wife, a heart only for their wife. This isn't a statement about whether they're married or single or divorced or remarried or anything. This is about a quality of character that you are, this person is a one-woman type of man, a faithful husband. And so they have a stable family. They're, they are a faithful husband. Their wife is growing under their leadership and care. She's reflecting his character. Their children are orderly. His household is managed one thinks of what Paul said earlier in chapter 3 about elders managing God's household need to demonstrate their ability in managing their own household. It's very similar. 
And then finally, we get to the reward of deacons. The reward of deacons. I think it's, I think it's cool here that, that Paul gives this blessing. And you might wonder, well, why do deacons get this blessing and reward, but the elders don't? Well, they do. Paul has sandwiched this section. If you remember, chapter 3, verse 1 says, whoever desires to be an overseer desires a good work. Well, there's the encouragement for people pursuing being an elder. Hey, if this is something God's putting on your heart, that's a good thing. It is a noble and good task. That's, that's how the section begins. And he ends the section with an encouragement for those who are the deacons. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so they, the reward of deacons who serve well. It's two rewards. One, a good standing. And this is before the church, before men. Um, one commentary writes, Because of his elder-like respectability, his informed belief as he holds to the mystery of the faith, his living belief that issues in a clear conscience, his tested life oozes with character. His helpmate is his best qualification. and He is graciously domesticated in relation to his wife and children. All of this provide him an excellent standing with his people. His authority goes far beyond words. And so this is about reputation and influence in the body. And when you see godly character and godly families and proven fruit-bearingness, it's something that we should admire. It's something that we rightly should honor. Um, I'd encourage you, we've, we've been blessed with some godly deacons in our church. I know our last month was Pastor Appreciation Month. Well, perhaps November can be Deacon Appreciation Month. I'd encourage you, as you interact with our deacons, to, to, to thank them, to honor them for the work they're doing. The text says those who serve well gain a good standing. And that's before men. And then vertically before God, great confidence. Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, and, and what that basically means is just that all of us, as we see God working in our lives, as we see God transforming us, as we see God growing us, as we see the fruit of our faith borne out, it gives us growing boldness and confidence that we are his children, that he has adopted us, that he has regenerated us, he has given us a new heart. And so here, as, as these men grow and they serve well and they're proven in their ministry, it just gives them even added confidence in their standing before God. It, it's very similar to what Paul writes in 2 Peter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, he writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge and Knowledge with self-control, and self-control is steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What Peter has just said is, make every effort to bear the fruit of the Spirit. For, if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, and that's the key, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. What he's saying is one of, not the only, but one of the major ways that we give ourselves assurance of our salvation is seeing the outworking of God's transforming work in our life. Seeing the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit. 
First uh, John 2 says it this way, by this we know that we have come to know him, that we are keeping his commandments. This is one of the ways that a Christian grows confident in his salvation is seeing the hand of God at work in his life. And so deacons who serve well gain this confidence. They gain this standing before the men in the church. And so as we, as we close the message for this morning, I just want to encourage you again um, that, that these are what the qualities that God is looking in men and women. This, this is the measuring stick that God cares about for maturity. And we have been greatly blessed with, with men in this church who are serving and serving well. And I just want to encourage you to honor them, to esteem them highly, to thank them, to encourage them as you have opportunity. And maybe to prayerfully consider if this is a ministry that God is calling you to. Um, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for giving your church faithful men, faithful women. We thank you for giving your church servant leaders who serve, and diligently work, and humble themselves to wait tables um, for the good of your body, for the good of your people. Lord, we thank you for them, and we just uh, pray that you would sustain them, that you would continue to give them grace so they could continue to serve. And Lord, we pray for those men that you may be raising up um, to serve as well. And Lord, we pray for all of us that we would grow in our own dignified lives, in our own sound faith, in our own families, Lord, as well. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.